It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on the home of Common Sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. It's a brand new week, it's a brand new month and it is a brand new door. The Prime Minister and the Tory party are promising that they're getting things done and we will all be going live to Manchester to find out just how they are planning to do that precisely. Meanwhile, the moaning minis that were warning we were all running out of petrol last week are now telling us there won't be any turkeys or pork for Christmas. When are we going to learn that these Ramonary negative types are simply on a wind-up? There's plenty of petrol out there. Last night, all the forecourts that were rammed last weekend were clear. Motorists were happily filling their cars up with petrol. Quite frankly, if you still haven't got any petrol, you're just not doing it right. And I'm going to say this. You are, in many ways, a bit of a numpty. This morning, those idiots from Insulate Britain are back after another weekend off. Why is it they don't work on Saturday and Sunday? What do they do on Saturday and Sunday? Today, though, they picked the wrong crowd. Don't come to London if you don't want to get booted around, right? Because they were forcibly removed from Wandsworth Bridge in London by angry commuters and a paramedic crew. Not before time. If I'd been there, they might have ended up getting a bit wet. 0344 499 1000. We're kicking things off this morning with Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, who's up in Manchester asking why the Tories have become the party of tax and spend. And Peter Cardwell joins us later on, our new political editor, just as Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, gets up to speak about exactly how the government plans to pay for everything. Guess what? We are actually going to pay for it. They're not. Uh, John Rentals here as well with his take on the week ahead. And a look at the new documentary series about the Blair Brown years. 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens is around as well. He's here from the Mail on Sunday. This weekend, he wrote about how the police in this country have failed the people, failed to do their jobs, and completely failed to recognise how dangerous some of their own officers are. Just a few days after the life term handed down to Wayne Cousins for the brutal murder and rape of Sarah Everard, yet another officer from the same squad is facing charges of rape. What on earth are these people doing? And we'll be catching up with Paul Charles on the new travel rules that come into effect today. Plus, we're joined by Angela Levin with the latest news of the royal family. And we'll be asking just how much worse things can get for Joe Biden. 0344 499 1000. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. You are the eyes and ears of the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. You tell us what's going on and we tell everybody else. It's a bright blue sky here in London. I know that's not the case everywhere, but it is an absolutely fantastic morning. Let's get going. Let's get excited. Let's get it all happening right here on the home of Common Sense. This is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Now, there are many things that joy can bring. There are many things that optimism can bring. There are many things that feeling good about yourself can bring. And the Tory party, you can see already, is already much better than the Labour Party was this time last week. If you remember back to the days of Angela um, Rayner, Angela Rayner talking about how the Tories were all scum. They're scum, I tell you. They're scum. She's talking about the Tories as if they are the enemy. Now, of course, up at the Tory party, uh, they're not all arguing with each other. They're not all fighting each other like rats in a sack. They're actually relatively happy. The only problem is the rest of the country is pretty unhappy, not least because they seem to have become the party of high taxes and high spending, which is not what the Conservatives are meant to do. Let's talk to Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, because he's got a question for Boris Johnson. Mark, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Good to be with you from Manchester. It's not blue skies here. It's a bit rainy and overcast and grey. And I'm feeling a bit overcast and grey about the Conservative tax policy, to be honest with well, you, Mike. Uh, well, well, as we all are, Mark, because who knew when we elected Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister back in 2019 with an 80-seat majority uh, that we, the libertarians of this world, were going to be happy? Because it turns out that he's been probably the least libertarian Prime Minister, I think, in the history of Prime Ministers, has he? Pretty much. I mean, even putting lockdown aside, Mike, which I think went on too long and was too harsh, let's just look at tax take. Just add together all of the taxes and work out what proportion of the national economy is going in tax. And under Boris Johnson's Conservative government, the rates are pretty much as high, almost bang on, almost on a par with Clement Attlee's post-war socialist government. That's what the Conservatives have presently brought about. And you know what um, Boris Johnson said yesterday when he was pressed on, well, you know, is this the absolute limit? You know, no more tax rises. He said, well, I'm emotionally committed to no more tax rises. Well, I don't think that's going to be of, uh, of much <laughs> sucker to, you, to your viewers or listeners. Mike, basically all he's saying is when he does put our taxes up again, he will feel sad about it. Also, well, I'm not I don't sure want him to be emotionally emo committed. I want I'm not sure that uh, emotional commitment is something you should be talking about, really. It's not really what something you think about as a strong point, is it? No, exactly. I mean, I'd rather have his intellectual and legal commitment, his political commitment. I don't really care what his emotions are. So, yeah, we, we have got uh, very, very high taxes. I think you were right, Mike, to say that the, the general sort of feeling here amongst Conservative members is relatively upbeat. They're two years into the Parliament. They should be having midterm blues. Usually you expect the governing party to be way behind the opposition in the opinion polls. They're a little ahead in the opinion polls. But you know what? On policy... I think there are some tough questions that quite a lot of uh, people here are asking, not least on tax. You know, if you even accept that maybe taxes had to go up to deal with the pandemic, OK, but what's the plan to get them down between, say, now and the next election or even over a longer period of time than that? So mm. the Conservatives seem to be very good about saying they're the low-tax party, pro-business, pro-enterprise, let's get the economy going, all great rhetoric. But when you look for the policies that actually assist that noble cause, those are pretty thin on the ground. Well, exactly right. Also, it's all very well saying, oh, we're going to save the NHS, we're going to take care of social care, uh, by which we mean to do a 1.25 increase on your national insurance, which for an awful lot of people, Mark, uh, including myself, will actually end up being a 2.5% increase if you happen to be self-employed. And it will also mean that companies are paying out a massive amount of money. But also, um, you know, the, the, the way that the, the, the economy appears to be going is that we keep hearing this mantra today uh, from various Tory ministers that, you know, it's time we paid people more money. Well, again, that's all very well, and I'm sure it's a good idea. However, um, there will be uh, a price to pay for that. 
That's absolutely right, Mike. The, the, there's only two ways you can pay more, people more money. You can kind of just print it and just say, well, everybody's going to get a pay rise, but that's just inflationary. In order for wages to really seriously go up, you need to improve productivity. So again, we heard from the Prime Minister saying he doesn't want to have a low-wage economy based on immigration. He called out the haulage industry. You've been reliant too much on low wages. Yeah. But you can't just pay somebody more for the same job, right? If you can make HGV drivers more efficient, more productive, I don't know, by raising the speed limit or something, yeah. then they can get their they can actually do their job rather more efficiently, then wages go up. But you can't just will higher wages into existence. You actually need to see workers' productivity in improving. And again, I'm not quite sure what the Conservatives' plan is for that. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? I mean, everything's getting more expensive. We're hearing inflationary kind of warnings from the Bank of England. Uh, energy prices massively going up. I saw a, a tweet at the weekend uh, from Lance Foreman, who, as you know, former Brexit Party MEP, uh, a man who runs his own business here in London. He says his electricity bill alone is going to be going up in the next year by £150,000. I mean, that is unsustainable for most businesses. No, that's right. Energy prices going up, especially... But inflation looks like it probably is back. You know, I reckon, Mike, for the last 20 years or so, we've kind of assumed in inflation's been done and dusted, not really with us at all. We can ignore it, bumbling along at, you know, a couple of percent. It does look like prices will go up. And when you get inflation into the system, it's very, very difficult to control, especially if the government is printing money and spending money like there's no tomorrow. So I think inflation uh, are, are, is some of the dark clouds on the horizon. But the other thing I really want to hear from the Conservatives uh, in the next couple of days, and who knows, we might, is as I, really this point about productivity. What are they going to do to deregulate the economy? You said at the top of the interview, Mike, that it looks like Boris Johnson, far from being a libertarian prime minister, has been leading one of the most interventionist governments ever. Now we've finally got Brexit done. Are there any regulations at all that we inherited from the European Union that, we were going to, that we're now going to scrap? I thought that was the whole point of the enterprise. Yes. And if we had a serious war on red tape, I think you could get productivity up, you could get businesses more efficient, it won't immediately help with uh, Lance Foreman's electricity bill, but it might help in other ways if he could run his business without needing to comply with endless regulations absolutely everywhere. That's actually a, a key they've got to turn in the lock. And at the moment, we've heard precious little about that, but I'll be keeping a beady eye on them yes. for the next couple of days to see if there is any deregulation plan at all from this government. Yes, it's a good question, that, Mark, as well, because it's all a bit kind of under the surface, it seems to me. We got this morning uh, Lord Frost talking about uh, planning to uh, completely replace the Northern Ireland Protocol and all of the Brexit conversation at the moment seems to be either around fishing with the French uh, or, uh, you know, goods and services in Northern Ireland. But what we don't hear much about is all of the stuff that's still hanging around. For example, the HGV conversations we were having last week, we were told that, you know, this CPC test, this competency test, which is a, an EU qualification, is still there. Now, why have we just got rid of that? That's exactly right. And Mike, wherever you look, there are hundreds of similar examples. Uh, one area I'd like to look at is all the EU's data protection laws, GDPR as it's called. So you need to go through all of these hoops and jump all of these hurdles just to register somebody on a database. Or what about financial services? I mean, uh, the, the City of London is, you know, the, the crown jewel really in the British economy. And I think a lot of the regulation that was coming out of Brussels wasn't making banking or financial services uh, any safer. 
It was just making it more bureaucratic. I can't think of a single piece of financial regulation that the government's yet seen fit to repeal. Now, maybe it takes some time, but I'm hoping this week they're going to sit down and actually start looking at it. You don't need to torch the whole lot, but you do need to have a plan to start repealing them. Each single regulation, Mike, doesn't make a huge amount of difference. I can't point to one rule and say, if you get rid of that, the economy will start booming. But if you actually get rid of many thousands of rules, incrementally, they all add up and it would actually breathe life into the private sector of the economy. Because there's a danger that what we've actually got in the private sector of the economy now is loads of people are going around complying rather than producing. Mm. And that's actually not a recipe for much economic growth at all. Well, I remember once it was explained to me that why Wall Street kind of went into decline in the same way that Fleet Street did. And it was the day that the back office people got put in charge of the business because the real business, as you know, the financial business is the people that do the trading, is the people that do the buying and selling, the people that make the packages, the people that are the, what they used to call the rocket scientists of the financial world. Now it's all run by the people who are running compliance to make sure you're not doing anything wrong, to make sure you're working within the rules. And I'm not saying they shouldn't work within the rules, but you know, when Fleet Street was uh, uh, in its heyday. It was a, they were selling a lot more newspapers. People were a lot more, um, shall we say, critical of the government than we are now. Um, and the media worked a lot better. I think that's absolutely right, Mike. And it doesn't just apply to Wall Street and Fleet Street. There's a danger in our economy at the moment that businesses are basically run by their human resources department. Mm. Now, that might not be a problem if human resources departments were only really geared to training up and making their workforce more skillful and more productive. But human resources departments are increasingly just about compliance. So I think we really, if we really want to see growth in the UK economy, we're obviously going to see some pretty rapid bounce back from uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns. But after that, looking a year or two hence, are we happy with the economy just growing at what's basically an historically feeble rate of one, one and a half percent a year? Or do we want to supercharge it? Do we want to leave the rest of Europe behind, aim for growth of about three or four or five percent a year? And if you want that, if you want to aspire to that, it's actually pretty simple how to get there. You need to get taxes down, not at the levels that they were at under the Clem Attlee Socialist Government of 1945. So taxes need to start going down and you need to get regulation down too. You don't need to burn the whole lot, but you just need to be on a downward trajectory and you need to stop the back office people and compliance being the, the guiding force of the economy. Private enterprise is pretty robust. It will find a way through it, but you're asking our entrepreneurs and businessmen to walk through treacle rather than actually helping mm. them on their way. And what's the real reason behind this kind of shortage of Labour because it's all come, come, come around rather quickly hasn't it I mean I don't remember even two months ago anyone talking about the fact that we were going to come out of the, uh, uh, the sort of the Covid restrictions but we were going to have a serious shortfall when it came to people doing jobs because we've still got about a million people unemployed uh, but we're being told that in almost every area now uh, of work we don't have enough people. Yeah, yeah. I think it will actually correct itself, Mike. Uh, I mean, we, haulage is obviously, and lorry drivers is obviously where a lot of the focus has been. Some people pointing at Brexit have got that totally wrong. This, this driver shortage is a problem right across the Western world, and we're the only country to have left the EU. But I think it's a regulatory backlog in a lot of jobs. If you were to take HGV drivers, for example, the problem was during the lockdown, we couldn't process anybody. They weren't doing their tests to get their forms. So usually you'd be bringing more and more people to market. But the lockdown, we're now really paying the price for. Whether that's drivers or, I don't know, people trying to get a qualification to be, say, a chef. Well, you probably didn't do a great deal of chef training over the past 18 months because everything was shut down. So usually you'd be processing people 
skilling them up, training them up, mm. and they'd be coming to the labour market day after day after day. But having had the best part of 18 months where the economy was put on ice, there's now a huge backlog. Good news is it will resolve itself. Bad news, it may take a few weeks or months to actually get there. Well, you see, this is why Talk Radio is a different type of uh, organisation media-wise, because what we don't do is encourage these kind of lefty Ramonas to come on and warn us that we can't have any pigs in blankets or turkey or ham for Christmas, because all of these things work themselves out in the end, because we do live in a relatively civilised society. And I've been saying for quite a long time, Mark, anyway, you know, so what if you can't get the 55 different brands of cornflakes that you could get last week in uh, in Tesco's? Why not just go with the basic one? Why not keep, uh, you know, stop worrying about things that you're going to run out of? There's always something else. Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. I think one of the worrying things in public debate at the moment, whether it's fuel shortages or am I going to get my turkey for Christmas, is we've become a bit of a snowflake society, yeah, haven't we? We, have. we? We look at something that might actually be a problem and we turn it into a catastrophe, the <laughs> apocalypse. Look, yeah. there have been shortages of fuel on the, on the forecourt, but that doesn't mean the whole thing's going to, the whole economy is going to grind to a halt. And as you rightly say, with a little bit of imagination and a bit of enterprise, there are workarounds for these sort of problems. I don't know, let's just imagine the absolute worst. You can't get a turkey for Christmas. Eat a chicken or have some beef <laughs> instead. Is it really that much of a problem? I mean, people it might really be irritated but it's hardly the end of the world, is it? No, I mean, but this is the trouble, though. But there are people in this country and people who have got quite high positions, some of them in the media, some of them in politics, who love the catastrophe. They absolutely want you to be fearful for every single little thing uh, that you might not be able to get your hands on. I mean, you know, what if there's an umbrella shortage and it starts raining? Well, guess what? You might have to get wet. Then when you get home, you dry your hair with a towel. Or maybe you can have a shower. You know, it's really okay. I think that's right, and uh, that's why I'm, you know, I'm glad to have you guys and talk radio around because m- many other parts of the media take the view that sort of good news is, is no news at all. Far better to be catastrophic about everything, saying the world's going to come to an end. The truth of the matter is things slowly but surely get better. Yes. And uh, if you do have bumps in the road, usually we've got the ingenuity to solve them. That's the actual truth of what goes on in Britain and much of the Western world. But too, too easily, I think, journalists, the media in general, can point at something mm. And I want to big it up as a big catastrophe. But with ingenuity, entrepreneurialism and a good bit of British spirit, we can crack most of these problems without too much difficulty, I think. Exactly right. I mean, I actually heard another presenter on another radio station this morning say, well, maybe it's time we started paying more for everything. And I'm thinking, well, that's all very well for you and your six-figure salary and your nice house in West London in the leafy suburbs, you know, near the river. I'm sorry, that's not for everybody. You know, there's an awful lot of people scraping by who are going to be forced to pay a lot more for their uh, energy bills this Christmas. Uh, and a lot of people who are not making any more anywhere like the sort of money uh, that is going to cover the rise in inflation. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think we should always keep our eye closely on the cost of living because, yeah, for the very affluent, you know, prices going up 2 or 3% doesn't even make much difference. You were mentioning earlier Lance Foreman's electricity bill. If it goes up by 150 grand, that's a big hit, but he's an affluent man, right? But for a lot of people right on the edge of, you know, counting the pennies, uh, the cost of living going up is always a problem. But I would start by not, if you like, blaming the price mechanism, blaming the market. What's the government doing Mm. to get the cost of living down? There are all sorts of green taxes on our energy bills already. I think it makes up about 15% of the energy bill or government interventions. All sorts of interventions in the economy around housing that makes that incredibly expensive. If the government wants it easier for people to get by, you don't necessarily have to jack up their salaries 
you could actually make sure that the things they buy become cheaper yes. and that their present salary can therefore stretch further. But that sort of imaginative thinking doesn't seem to make it to the corridors of power just yet, Mike. No, it doesn't. But I'm glad you mentioned the government. Stay where you are, Mark, for a moment. We're just going to stop and take a little uh, rain check. I want to come back and ask you about Rishi Sunak, who's going to be asking uh, some questions this morning. We're going to be covering him live when he gets up to speak around about uh, 10 to 12. Uh, we're talking to Mark Littlewood, Director General of the IEA, Institute of Economic Affairs. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are, of course, the home of common sense. We're talking to Mark Littlewood, who is also uh, full of common sense. He's the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. And I'm looking at the Times front page this morning, um, Mark, and it's got a headline that says, All Britain's Electricity to be Green. By 2035, I mean, this is another thing that drives people crazy, particularly traditional Tory voters who are not that interested uh, in going green. They don't mind doing it a little bit as long as it's not going to cost them a lot of money. But one of the reasons why, as you were saying earlier, that we're paying so much for our energy is because of this green subsidy that we're all giving. No, that's absolutely right, Mike. Look, uh, you know, the environment matters and tackling climate change matters, but there is a pretty major price on it. And there's a danger that the United Kingdom is marching ahead of every other country in the world in in some sort of act of environmental self-flagellation to prove a point. I mean, the UK is only 1% of all carbon emissions on the planet. Even if you were to get that down to zero tomorrow, you've only really made a pinprick in global carbon emissions. And we're told this is a global problem. So there is a danger that we're racking up colossal expenses. I don't think we've got a, a, a sensible mechanism for making all energy green by 2025, unless we're all going to stay at home running around in our own giant hamster wheels to kind of power <laughs> our own homes. Um, because there isn't an easy other way to get there. Look, over a period of time, you can you can start to do it. We are going to gradually move away from fossil fuels. But again, we were saying earlier in the show, Mike, about how everything's made into a total catastrophe. And I think we sometimes think that about the environment mm. and climate change. We should be taking our time to get there rather than make it rather than to believe that the end of the world's going to come by Thursday next week if we you know, have know. any sort of uh, fossil know. fuels in use at all. Absolutely unbelievable. Just very quickly, Mark, we're nearly out of time. Rishi Sunak speaking uh, just before midday today. Uh, what are you hoping for? Well, I'll tell you what I'm hoping for is that he's actually going to give us some examples of how the government's going to get out of the way of the private sector. Some indication of tax cuts down the line or deregulation, as I was speaking earlier. How is it going to be easier to set up and grow a business in Britain? That's what I'm hoping for. What I fear I'm going to get, Mike, is yet more job support schemes. Another 500 million, I think, has been trailed for that. We're getting to the stage where Rishi Sunak doesn't just need a magic money tree. He needs a magic money forest. And I'm pretty, pretty worried that that's just what we're going to hear. But I'm still hopeful. Maybe there's a rabbit in his hat and we'll hear a bit more of that at 10 to 12 when he gets to his feet in the auditorium uh, just down the 100 yards or so from where I'm standing now, Mike. Brilliant stuff. Well, Mark, listen, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Glad to get you at the beginning of the conference rather than at the end when you'll probably be quite considerably more uh, fatigued, shall we say. Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. He's up in Manchester, as is Julie Hartley Brewer, of course, for uh, Talk Radio every single morning between now and Wednesday. Boris Johnson will speak on Wednesday. According to the Times, he's going to make his speech it's all about greed energy. 
I really wish he wouldn't. Boris, for heaven's sake, mate, would you get the economy back? Would you make sure that people can afford to do things and buy things and pay for things in the same way that they have for the rest of the year so far, that they're not going to be facing massive inflation? They're not going to be facing, you know, ridiculous costs for everything. And by the way, can we stop worrying about running out of stuff? Okay? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. First of all, let me just address uh, those numpties from Insulate to Britain, right? Once again, they've had Saturday and Sunday off. I'm still completely puzzled as to why they do that. Why don't they operate on Saturday and Sunday? Do they have jobs at the weekend or something? Do they have some kind of restriction on their travel? plans. But today they decided in their wisdom to uh, try and blockade the Blackwall Tunnel, uh, which is in southeast London. It connects the north and south of the river around about Greenwich, around by the O2. They also decided to sit down on Wandsworth Bridge. Right. And we're going to show you just exactly what happened when they did that, because luckily for them or unluckily for them, you might say uh, some paramedics and some rather clever London commuters decided, you know what? We're not having any of this, guys. We're not having it. We're going to drag you off the road ourselves. We're not going to wait for the police, who, by the way, are just down the road at New Scotland Yard. They're literally, you know, 10 minutes away by fast car or probably less. But so the good people of London have done that for themselves. They've dragged these complete and utter idiots off the road. And quite frankly, I'm surprised they didn't chuck them in the river. Now, here's the other thing that I've got for you. Unfortunately for some of these wallies from Insulate Britain, I'm told they've now entered Millwall territory. Now, that isn't going to go well, because I'm afraid if you go anywhere near Millwall territory, people don't like it unless you're from Millwall. And if you are from Millwall, uh, you will defend Millwall uh, with your life. So Insulate Britain, you better get ready for a casualty department. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm telling you. 0344 is the number. Let's talk to Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, because apparently there are new travel rules in place. Let's find out what they are. Paul, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I consider myself to be reasonably well informed. Uh, however, I've completely forgotten uh, what these new travel plans are. So would you please tell us? Well, and it's very easy to lose track, isn't it? Because they've been changing so often. But I'm pleased to say from 4 a.m. this morning the traffic light system, much derided, much criticised, the one that caused so much distress has finally been abolished. So the amber list is gone. We now just have a red list and we have a rest of the world list. And crucially, and perhaps more importantly for people listening, I would say, is you no longer need a pre-departure test to get into the UK. That was the test that caused a lot of faff and hassle for people when they were overseas. They had to try and find a pharmacy or get a test done or organise a video call to get their test uh, checked. And, of course, it cost them you know, 30, 40, yeah. sometimes 80 pounds as well. Right. So that's gone. When you come into the UK now, if you're fully vaccinated you get uh, a lot more freedom and you just have to fill in an online passenger locator form as well as take a test right. on day two. On day two. Because one of the things I think that stopped a lot of people from going abroad in the summer was that they would have to take that test before they came back, which mm. might, if it was positive, meet, lead them to having to quarantine in another country for two weeks uh, at government uh, hotels at their own expense. So that's no longer now a risk. No, that's, well, if you're fully jabbed, it's no longer an issue. Yeah. Uh, of course, if you come in from a red country, then there are tougher rules. And if you're not fully jabbed, there are tougher rules. You still have to take uh, 
the pre-departure test. Mm. You still have to do a test on day two and day eight. You still have to self-isolate. So what the government's doing is basically saying, look, this is the incentive to get fully jabbed. If you don't want to be fully jabbed, but you want to travel, then you're going to face more restrictions. Mm. But if you're fully jabbed, you will get a freer ride. Yeah. Now, I'm planning, uh, hopefully, to go over to the US of A uh, for Christmas, mm. right? Um, what will I need to Your do? Your family, to... I think. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm hoping to get the whole gang together, which involves uh, rather more complications than the Red army invading Siberia um, because people are coming from all sorts of different points of the world but um, as far as I understand it I'll have to probably take a test before I get on a plane yes so what's likely to happen with the USA at long last the Biden administration have said we're going to open our borders to UK and European citizens from early November. And the date I'm hearing is actually it will be at some point between the 8th of November and the 13th of November. So in that second week is the window that airlines are being briefed. Things will open up. Mm. And in fact, if you look at airfares at the moment, if I want to fly to New York on BA or Virgin Atlantic, if I fly on the 6th of November, sorry, on the 5th of November, Saturday the 5th, I can get a, a round trip for about £400 in mm. economy. If I choose to travel round the day after on the 6th or the 7th, the fares shoot up to about 1000 oh, So wow. there's an indication that the airlines think that's the week when things are going to open up. But yes, you would, be, uh, you would have to take a COVID test. We don't know yet if it's an antigen or a PCR that the Americans are going to stipulate, oh. but you'll have to take a test if you're fully jabbed. Then you can get into the USA and celebrate. And then when you get there, what's the what, what, what awaits you? My understanding is there's no test requirement for visitors once they get there. No, no, there'll be there'll be the usual friendly smile from U.S. immigration. And then you are free to do whatever you like. Um, and when you go back to the U.K., you won't need to, to do any test either. Uh, you just show that you're fully jabbed, get on the plane, uh -huh. come back to the U.K. And you'll have to take okay. a day to oh, So no test to test. come back either then? No, not because the rules are from today, of course, mean you don't have to take a pre-departure mm. test. So it will be cheaper to travel. But what we need to see are two things. This is not over yet. Uh, the campaign continues in the travel industry for these two changes. First of all, to get the day two test removed. If you're fully jabbed, why should you be tested when you come back? And secondly, the red list. Currently, there are over 50 countries still on that red list. We're going to get an update this week, possibly from the prime minister whilst he's at the Tory conference, on that red list coming down to maybe 10, 12 countries, something like that. Long overdue, the likes of South Africa, it should be off the red list. Mexico should be off the red list. Cape Verde should be off the red list. The list goes on, mm. but we need to see a much smaller red list. And in fact, there's a question as to whether we need a red list at all. Right. If you're fully jabbed, you should be able to travel anywhere and come back. And what would happen, say, for example, Paul, if you were to buy one of those cheap affairs to New York at 400 quid? Uh, it turns out then you can't go. Can you change it for an another fair later in uh, the month, even for the same money? Or would you have to pay the excess? That will depend on the airline and the policy. Because that, that could be got quite a place. ways, that, couldn't it? Yeah, it could. Um, and obviously airlines are trying to claw back the losses they made over uh, the last year. Yeah. But they're being pretty flexible at the moment. And they certainly BN Virgin have policies in place where you can switch your ticket to another date, um, usually at no cost. 
or you can in fact ask for a refund uh, i think up until april next year is the the latest staging point so there, there's a lot of flexibility now built in because yeah. the airlines realize there's so much chopping and changing yeah, and quite. they're trying to help consumers get through this okay and finally australia paul they made an announcement last week saying that they were opening up again but obviously in a limited way uh, i've got some australian friends uh, here in the uk they say that uh, it's all very well saying you can go back to australia however um, you can't actually go anywhere else once you get back there. So if you fly into Sydney, for example, you can't move around because the states are all closed up. That's right. You've still got different policies between the different states. And of course, it's their vaccine rollout in that particular state that will determine whether you're, you're allowed to leave Australia or come into Australia. So I think that's going to take some weeks to work through. Uh, but the good news is you're seeing the likes of Qantas say they're going to start flying again to London from the 14th of November. So there is light at the end of the tunnel for the Australians, I'm pleased to say. I, too, have friends in Australia who are incredibly frustrated at the hassle and frustration uh, they've had to put up with mm. since March last year. They can't wait to travel out of their country and see family and friends again. It is coming. I think... Um, it's going to be a lot easier from Christmas onwards, that's for sure. Great stuff. Uh, Paul, thank you very much indeed. Paul Charles there from the PC Agency Travel Consultancy Firm. Well, so good news for an awful lot of people. Not so much if you haven't uh, got the vaccination, of course, but if you haven't, uh, tell us what you're going to do. Are you just going to not bother travelling or are you going to just take tests everywhere? Let's talk to David, first of all, before we do anything else. He's in London, wants to talk about Insulate Britain. Hi, David. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, good. I just want to say, Mike, that Insulate Britain keeps saying that they are non-violent, mm. but they are, they're stopping people from getting to hospital, they're stopping emergency services, yeah. and so to me, to me, they are a violent organisation. Yes, I agree with that. I think they're absolutely misdirected, misguided, uh, and quite dangerous. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you, David. Very well said. I don't know what's wrong with these Insulate Britain types. Every time you see them talking, they're either very wealthy sort of elderly people uh, or they're very young on benefits people. Surely we must be able to stop them from doing what they're doing, taking the law into their own hands, completely ignoring injunctions, completely ignoring police action, completely ignoring uh, the fact that they get arrested every time they do anything. It's an absolute shambles, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's starting to get a bit boring now because Peter Hitchens um, is right again. And I mean, there was a time when I used to think, nah, he's not talking. No, he's not. He's not right about this. But he's been right about almost everything. And now here we are about to talk to him about the police, uh, which he's been saying hasn't been fit for purpose for quite some time. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. I'm not sure about that almost, Mike. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, there wasn't... I'm tired of being right, but th this is something I've been pursuing for nearly 20 years. Yes. Because I did that thing which journalists are supposed to do. I thought, what's going on? I came back from, from some years abroad, and that it sharpens your eyes for what's been going on in your country. And, you, and I thought, it's funny, I seem to remember there used to be police on patrol in this country, and now there aren't any. Yeah. Where are they all gone? And I decided to find out why and, uh, and indeed whether whether I was right to think that. And a huge revolution in policing, uh, which began in the 1960s, had in fact come to fruition around about that time. And two things had happened, uh, and they are connected, but not directly. One is that they decided to stop doing the job they were originally formed to do, patrolling the streets to prevent crime and disorder and to reassure the public, and instead to, to drive around in cars or sit in offices waiting 
for things to happen, uh, which is an absolute recipe for those things to happen. And uh, as as I so often have needed to point out since then, the police cannot unburgle you. Mm. They cannot unmug you. They cannot unstab you. A policeman after a crime, unless he's or she is very good at first aid, is actually not much use. The point of them was always to prevent. They gave that up. At the same time, they became increasingly politicized. Uh, they were more and more centralized. The small local forces responsive to local needs were merged into great big distant forces that nobody had any control over at all. And they became increasingly absorbed by, by what we would now call politically correct or woke ideas and less and less interested in, in crime. So that it's now become a joke that what I started saying 20 years ago, don't bother asking them about a burglary, don't bother asking them about a robbery, don't bother asking them about disorder in the street near you because they won't turn up. Mm. Uh, but if, you're, if you say something which is politically incorrect, they'll be after you. And, and so it's, it's, people treat this as a joke. But actually, the police officer of, of now is, is a paramilitary social worker because together with this development has gone an enormous increase in the personal powers of police constables and the way they behave. Look at them now. Their belts hanging with pepper sprays, mm. handcuffs, mm. telescopic clubs. Who knows what else? And stab vests because they look as if they're terrified or simultaneously terrified that we're going to attack them and ready to attack us back. Mm. Uh, if we do. And here's a crucial point in the Sarah Everard case, which has been turned, of course, by a, a largely politically correct media and political, uh, a, a political world into a feminist and politically correct issue. It's all about women. Well, of course, I'm as concerned about the, the, the dangers of women as anybody else is, and I don't want them to be in danger. But the truth is, anybody could have been subjected to what happened to Sarah Everard. Mm. Because what the, the, what the revolting cousins did was he used COVID powers to persuade somebody who believed, quite rightly, she was a law-abiding person going about her business, to persuade her that he had the power to detain her. Mm. And these immense powers, which were the, 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 the supposed war on terror and the supposed war on COVID, have given to individual police officers, which they never previously possessed, have come at the same time as they've become politicized and totally uninterested mm. in serving our concerns. And here's another vital point about this. The police in this country used to be conservative. Look, there's never been and never will be a perfect police force. Uh, such a thing can't exist. There, there are things bound to be wrong with, with, with such bodies. But when the police force was still a more or less conservative body, which was against crime, believed that criminals were, were bad people rather than people in need of help, yeah. uh, and, and it was, was in general on the side of what you might call conservative morality, it was much more use. This continued. There was a sort of battle in the police force until the McPherson report and the, the horrible Stephen Lawrence murder, which was made into the pretext uh, for a, the a politically correct inquisition uh, in which anybody who held conservative views was pretty much pushed out of line. And then you got the appointment, extraordinary appointment in 2017 of, of Cressida Dick, whose record as a police officer is, shall we put it, mildly questionable and was put in office. And the, the absolute pinnacle of all this Take this comparison. Uh, a few years ago, the police force headed by Cressida Dick investigated with zeal and frenzy with platoons of officers, a completely ludicrous charge made by a mad fantasist who turned out to be a criminal against a field marshal, a decorated field marshal and a, a, a national hero. And they, they, they investigated, they, they burst into his life, making it a misery, greatly distressing him and his family. Uh, but the same police force could not be bothered to investigate the fact that one of its own officers uh, was known 
uh, to be an enthusiast for what is called extreme pornography, a drug taker, and for going around without the lower part of his clothing on. Uh, this is the contrast, a completely fantastic, baseless mm. claim against Field Marshal Lord Bramwell was pursued with vigour and manpower and money and a serious and dangerous case of a police officer out of control was not pursued at all. Yes, and that, and, that and sums up what's wrong with this outfit. Well, it really does, because, I mean, not only uh, was it a political manoeuvre, that whole business with, uh, uh, with, with, with that operation that Cressida Dick ran, but it was also backed by uh, no less than the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson at the time, who got up uh, in Parliament and demanded the truth be told about all these terrible uh, stories that, that he had heard from this fantasist. Um, and, and worse than that, Peter, we learned at the weekend, I think, that three weeks before the murder of Sarah Everard, the police were given CCTV footage uh, of Wayne Cousins at the McDonald's drive through yeah. where he did uh, flash uh, at the woman behind the, uh, the counter, um, and they did nothing about it. Well, they, they, of course, this is this is being made into an issue about phoners, and the truth is, they don't do anything about much. And their basic default position is is not to respond. Mm. Uh, they don't do they don't respond because, because they couldn't. What happens when you become a reactive fire brigade police force is so much crime and disorder then takes place that you cannot conceivably respond to it all. So you start by doing a kind of triage, trying to work out what you will respond to. And then bit by bit, you give it up and it simply becomes a matter of issuing a crime number and moving on. It, this is the, why I say that this police force, which no longer deserves that name, should be replaced. That we should, we should uh, create new police forces, which are genuine local police forces of the kind we used to have. We should advertise for men and women of probity and experience and restraint uh, to staff them. We should train them in doing the job which Robert Peel originally established the police for, preventive patrol. And when that force is ready, we should disband the existing force and close it down. Uh, I, I think the, the, this, this will become increasingly attractive the more people experience the, the, the complete failure of the, of, of the police of this country to serve them. They no longer serve the people. They serve, to some extent, a very politically correct state, but they don't serve us. And I think that the time has come to say, well, we pay for this. Yes. Uh, what we want is a police force which serves us again. And, and that, and I, I think, the, I used to say, oh, well, yes, there are lots of good officers in the police force, which may well be true, uh, though I think it's less true than it was, say, 20 years ago, when a lot of people who had hung over from the old days were still around. It doesn't matter how nice they are, uh, how kind to animals they are, or anything to do. If they are in an institution which is fundamentally uh, unreformably bad, then they will not be able to do the job that we pay them for. No doubt some of the people in the existing police could be recruited into the, into the replacement force, which I propose. Uh, uh, but some, it seems to me, very definitely shouldn't, including people like Wayne Cousins, uh, who should be filtered out. Actually, I think a police force which doesn't have an ironclad rule that nobody is hired with a criminal record is uh, is on the way to perdition anyway. And I think well, that it seems some time ago. It does seem extraordinary, doesn't it, that you can have a criminal record and work in the police, but you it probably but you probably couldn't work, for example, where you work. If you had a criminal record, they probably wouldn't employ you. If I was done for some kind of cr crime, uh, I would probably be fired and shunted out the door quicker than you could say Cressida, you know. But you can work in the police. That's not a problem. It is a, it is an astonishing fact, and when I first learned it, I was amazed that more people weren't shocked by it. But it, it is, it, it is it, this, there are some places plainly where you can be flexible, and you can say, okay, well that. No, but in the police force, you surely have to say, actually, that is a disqualification. But we haven't for some time, and this is part of the problem. We don't anymore. But this is because we don't anymore 
think of the police as being, as I say, on the side of, of, of what I call conservative morality, uh, believing that certain actions are wrong and should be punished. Exactly right. And what about Cressida Dick? Because, I mean, with every sort of hammer blow, as it were, uh, she seems to survive and, and be even more sure of herself. You know, today we find out, or uh, well, last night we find out, that yet another police officer who was working in the same squad, effectively, uh, in Parliament as Cousins, is on a rape charge. Obviously, we can't talk about that case because, you know, the trial hasn't happened yet. But, I mean, do you, do you think it's time now that she has to go away? Well, the thing is, it, it, the kind of force which she had, uh, this this this, this uh, politically correct left-wing police force which she had, uh, desires her as its ideal leader. If that's the sort of police force you want, you're going to want someone like her. I, I predicted many, many years ago that she would, uh, when I first heard of her exploits in the Thames Valley Police, as you know, following the, the nostrums of, of modern politically correct policing, I predicted that she would become the first woman commissioner. I've got the cutting somewhere. It's extraordinary how long ago it was. It, that kind of police force requires that kind of leader. It's, I would, of course, like to see her go as a, as a symbolic moment. But the truth is, if you didn't reform the whole police force of which she is the head at the same time, uh, it wouldn't change anything. They would find somebody else who was just the same. And it's the fact that the the modern police force is like this and wants somebody who is ultimately a person of the of the left uh, to to run it. Uh, that is the problem. The, the whole the whole idea of policing in this country was devised because of what had happened on the continent, where in the in the 18th century, police forces have become engines of repression and a machinery of the state and were much feared and disliked. And the, the parliament refused to set one up, even though it was quite high crime in London. They said, we're not risking this uh, because it will be a monstrous body, which will, will eventually become a threat to public liberty and, mm. and, and indeed to everything else. And as it turns out, uh, that's what's happened. But in the initial 100 years or so after setting up police, 150 years really, uh, it wasn't so because of, the, of Robert Peel's extremely sensible rules. No flashy uniforms, uh, no, no obvious weapons carried, uh, limited powers, no police officer really to have any more powers than an ordinary citizen, and patrolling to prevent their prime purpose, to prevent crime and disorder. And that all that's been forgotten. So it doesn't matter. You can get rid of Cressida Dick and replace her with another person yeah. who would, would turn out to be just like her. She's not really the issue. Mm. No, indeed. But there was a sort of certain proportionality as well about the police. And when I was growing up, you know, you were kind of respectful of police officers. Um, you know, they were generally speaking quite good at working out what to do in any given situation. You know, if they needed to use force, they would. If they thought that was a wrong idea, they wouldn't. Nowadays, you see video footage, and I know that's often difficult to judge because you don't always see the whole picture, but they seem to be excessively violent when they don't need to be, and then they seem to do nothing when they should. Like, for example, this morning, we're hearing that they were standing by at Blackwall Tunnel uh, as uh, the Insulate Britain mob uh, was sitting down blocking it, and they weren't dragging them away. Well, the old form of policing created a certain type of officer. The, the, the old-style patrolling police officer, on his own, because they, they, they didn't go out in pairs. If, if they go out in pairs, what they, all they do is, is walk along together chatting about overtime. They have to go uh, out singly. The, the individual police officer came to rely on his good relations with the public. He got to know the public. He got to know members of the public who were not criminals and, and who, who were not disorderly louts or vandals, and he came to respect them, and they came to like him or her. And as a result, the police had a strong, close relationship with the public. 
which they have now completely lost. And, and, the, and therefore, the huge gradation of you know, any of us who've ever been in a late night uh, difficulty on a train or something, there's, there's a huge gradation between uh, between an altercation and, and violence, which diplomacy and, and good sense can overcome. That long area in which experience plays a huge part, a long area of, of choice of behavior has gone. They, they go straight into the mode of hostility. And in many cases, they never meet anybody among the public who isn't a criminal or a suspect. And they refer, and they deny this, but they refer to us as civilians, as if they were some kind of armed force. They're not. They are themselves as civilians, ordinary citizens in uniform, and they should behave as such. They, they do a much better job if they do. And it's interesting because I was t I'm given a piece of information over the weekend about Sarah Everard, where she was um, abducted from, uh, was not far from, just yards away from the former closed, decommissioned Metropolitan Police Station in Cavendish Road. So, you know, well, yeah. what, how about that for a symbol? It's another thing. I mean, it's, it, these, these abandoned frontier fortresses where, where, where the police stations were established in, in highly populated central areas where the, to give a visible sign that there was a presence of authority in, in, in our midst to which you could appeal at any time. In those days, if you went into the police station, there was a desk and a sergeant at it. Now, if you could find a police station and it's open, uh, you find armoured glass and probably the person behind the armoured glass is not even a police officer. No. Uh, all that's gone, but most of the stations have gone. It, that went at the same time as the, uh, as, the, as the foot patrols were abolished. And my book, which I have to plug here, though I say, for heaven's sake, if you don't want to buy it, get it from a library. I don't mind how, how anybody gets hold of it. Would you please read it? The Abolition of Liberty, which I published in 2004. I pressed that book into the hands of at least one Home Secretary and two senior police officers. And I've never got any response at all, though it gives a very, very thorough, rational, factual argument about what's going wrong. Yeah, and, and implies very strongly what should be done to put it right. No response at all. No, of course not, because it's not the right response. I mean, they don't want well, to have to respond I, I to still, common sense, for heaven's sake. I, I would just, it's just the debate on this is at such a low level, particularly among politicians who say things like, Bobbies, we'll have more Bobbies on the beat. There yeah. hasn't been such a thing as a Bobby probably since the 1970s, and there hasn't been a beat either. And anybody who says that instantly reveals yes. himself or herself as not knowing anything about it. And then they say, oh, well, you can't do that because we haven't got the numbers anymore. Yes. The truth is the numbers of police, both in, in raw numbers and per head of the population, have gone up hugely since the days when we had foot patrol. Yeah. And what's more, the police no longer have to run prosecution. That's been handed over to the CPS, so they might get that back. They're no longer in charge of the security of, of commercial premises, which has gone to private security firms. They no longer do parking. And as far as I can see, they've completely abandoned anything re remotely re resembling traffic patrols either. So they've got less to do. And they have tens of thousands of back office non-uniform staff, who they refer to as civilians, mm. working with them, who they also didn't have before. So there is no excuse in, in, ter in terms of numbers or resources for not doing the job which they were originally set up for. But this is the world in which we now live, Peter, where uh, the soundbite is, is king. I mean, I've just heard Boris Johnson in the news saying that, you know, they've got a shortage of lorry drivers in China. I don't, how does he know that? I don't believe that for a minute. And even if it is true, how would he ever possibly find out that that was the case? Sorry, I, I mean, nothing, no, nothing anybody tells you about China should be, should be taken as truth unless you've been there personally and verified it. it yes. seems to Exactly. exactly. Speaking, of, speaking of our political landscape, uh, I'm pleased to see you're not having to suffer the swings, slings and arrows of having to go to Manchester to watch Tory Oh, Party I am going to Manchester. I, I go oh, to Manchester. Yeah, this afternoon I've got a, I, I, I'm doing a harangue at um, 
at a meeting outside the conference, ah, uh, outside the conference zone, uh, organised by Unheard about the the future or possibly lack of it of the Conservative Party. Ah, right, okay. So, oh, no, well, I am, I am in fact going to Manchester, but not for not. I won't be going to that dreadful conference. No. Uh, well, I'm glad to. I shall look out for 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 you on uh, on social media. But but I was interested in your take on uh, Angela Rayner this week as well uh, and the smoking business because it's interesting that uh, as you say, uh, she's a bit old fashioned when it comes to showing herself smoking, isn't she? Well, I, I'm not sure it was intentional, but it's, it is extraordinary how and you and you're, you're but perhaps old, old enough to remember Harold Wilson. Yes, he used to smoke for political pipe, effect. Yes. He would appear on television, and sometimes he'd light his pipe so vigorously the whole studio would fill with thick smoke. Oh. You'd barely see him. Actually, he smoked cigars, but he smoked the pipe because he thought it made him more homely. Oh. Uh, and then the, 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 the uh, Neil Kinnock even smoked a pipe. You may remember. Yes, as well. I do. So Public smoking by politicians used to be normal. And then as the, as the news sunk in that smoking was bad for you, they began to do it secretly. So David Cameron smoked, but no one ever saw it. Bar Barack Obama smoked, but it was everybody knew this, but you almost never saw a picture of it. Uh, and now here's Angela Rayner and, and Michael Gove, I believe, is also a smoker. Yes. People have lecturous constantly about our duty to the sacred NHS and the public health. And here they are doing something which everybody knows is fantastically dangerous and which is certainly alleged to be dangerous to people nearby. And I don't think you can you can do both. It's one or the other, but not both. You can't be a left wing politician like Michael Gove or Angela Rayner uh, and smoke. Uh, you've got to give one up or the other. Yes. Well, I mean, if, certainly, they give up. well, certainly, if you're going to be advising people on their health, I think that's a de, de rigueur. Yeah, I mean, it? Absolutely. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's like a very fat person advising people on their diet. <laughs> Just don't do it. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Peter, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Making perfect sense. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, who basically said back in 2019 that the police force of this country should be disbanded and you should have just start again. Um, because he says, I increasingly believe uh, this horrible mess is closely linked to the failure of the police to control or deal with the crimes they increasingly regard as petty of theft and disorder, which is entirely correct, isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we're going to talk to Sarah Elliott, spokeswoman for the Republicans Overseas UK, chair of the Hamilton Society as well, because we were talking uh, to our White House correspondent, Ksenia, last week, and she was telling us that Joe Biden's popularity rating uh, has plummeted and is plunging with every single week that passes. But worse than that now, uh, there's a situation in the USA where there are loads of homeless people uh, in many of the big cities, many of them living, quite frankly, either on the streets or just in the countryside outside those cities. But there's also a situation arising where an awful lot of states are wondering whether they can secede from the United States. Let's find out what's it all about. Sarah, very good uh, afternoon to you. Hi, nice to see you. Yes. Yeah, nice to see you too. I mean, um, I suppose you could have said, I told you so, uh, but Joe Biden's not turning out to be quite the full ticket and not quite the president that uh, everybody thought he was going to be. No, it seems like he was just the guy to stop Trump. Um, and as we said during the, a year ago in the run-up to the election, he has increasingly gone left in his voting record over the past 50 years. And now he's becoming a darling of the progressives. Uh, his, um, I mean, it's an absolute disaster in the United States right now. His immigration policy is 
is just all over the place. He promised that in the first 100 days, he would totally overhaul the immigration system. We have over a million arrests a year to date at the southern border. Mm. You know, 15,000 Haitians were underneath a bridge in Texas, 12,000 of which were let back, let just free in the right. United States. I was going to say, then, what happens to yeah. them after they get arrested? Do they just get set free? Well, I mean, they, they, there's no way to handle them. I mean, we in July, there were over 200,000 people illegally entering the country at that border. It's so overwhelmed. So what happens is they get a court date to come back to then get their um, asylum case adjudicated. Right. But do you think they come back? Of course not. <laughs> Why would yeah, they? So why would they? Um, I mean, so then they go underground and God knows what happens after that to them. Mm. Uh, so it, not only that, it, the immigration policy is bad, but the inflation, it's at 4%. Prices are rising. I was just in the United States this summer. Gas is, or petrol is just off the charts. Um, and then you, you also have the vaccine mandates, mm. forcing private employers to mandate uh, their companies or their employees, or they'll lose their jobs. That's not popular. Um, and the crime is out of control in the American cities. And of course, the disgraceful Afghanistan withdrawal, leaving our allies and our American mm. citizens in the hands of terrorists, as well as a whole military of equipment. Um, it, it's just a disaster. And he's going down in history right now as one of the worst presidents in modern history, challenging that of Jimmy Carter, uh, who has always been known as the worst. Uh, it's going to be very hard for him to dig himself out of this. He cannot get his Democratic caucus to even agree on an infrastructure bill. Mm. Uh, so legislatively, he is flaring, flailing everywhere. And, um, you know, I, I told you so. Well, right. And there's going to be some midterm elections pretty soon as well, right? Yes. And there's like, so, um, I mean, both chambers, the Senate and the House, look like they could very well switch. The House definitely most likely will switch. We're only a few seats down. Uh, the Senate's a little more tricky, but he can't even get his senators and to join him on this infrastructure bill, mm. uh, even with Kamala Harris as the 51 vote. And what is going on with some of these states that are saying they no longer want to be part of the union? Well, they just culturally, they, they don't, um, one, constitutionally, they think they have a right to succeed because uh, the federal government is overstepping states' rights mm. um, and their jurisdiction. So there's all this conflict as to where the federal steps in and where the state steps in. Uh, and culturally, the federal government right now is just throwing down the throats of American citizens, this you know, um, identity politics, you know, critical race theory type attitude. Mm. And that doesn't reflect the um, the views of most Americans throughout the country. So, yeah. um, you know, states are going, no, we need to defend our citizens and the views of them uh, locally. Yes. Well, I've been surprised, actually, by quite a lot of the, um, I don't know, the willingness, I suppose, um, of some Americans to just go along with doing what they're told. Because, you know, um, as I say to many people, I lived there for 10 years and I've got family there. Um, and I just don't really recognise that in the American people that I know uh, who are willing to do all sorts of things because of COVID or because the, the president tells you to do it or you have to get vaccinated to go somewhere. I mean, New York, I'm told, is now uh, more or less a sort of vaccination city, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't go anywhere without a QR code. However, you know, um, some restaurants and bouncers, I mean, this is what happens. They don't, they're the enforcers. So they'll choose to accept your QR code or not. And quite frankly, most people just want the business. They'll let people in. Um, I, I think 
the COVID has definitely revealed a lot about our character as a nation and uh, what, you know, I think it's been shocking and eye-opening to many of us. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people trust their government. They trust the CDC. They trust the advice of these um, advisors and authorities. Um, whereas I would say there's also growing sense of people distrusting mm. um, the authorities and CDC. They're keeping quiet because clearly the backlash is so bad. But, uh, you know, don't be surprised if you see people willing to lose their job over the vaccine mandate. Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, it ends up really creating a sort of two tier society. I mean, we've sort of got a bit of that here, but it feels like it's a bit worse in the US. Yeah, I mean, Americans are a bit more um, passionate or you wear your heart on your sleeve a little bit more. So I think passions are always kind of more inflamed in America than Britain. I think just culturally, um, that's kind of who we are. But, um, you know, some areas are more that way than others. You know, I was in Virginia and North Carolina over the break, um, over August. And, you know, I didn't talk about COVID or think about COVID for a week in North Carolina. Right. You know, people kind of get on with their life and you didn't see maths, but mm. you step into a grocery store in Maryland which, although it's Republican governor, very democratic, very liberal, yeah. um, you felt like you were a leper if you didn't have a mask. Right. Yeah. Isn't it weird that that's kind of how it's broken down? It's the same here where you've got, as you know, uh, in, in, in London, a sort of, you know, the uh, the people who tended to vote remain, the people who tend to have quite good middle class white collar jobs, the people who uh, are working from home. They're all the ones that want everyone to wear a mask. Yeah, well, they, they trust the elites, remember, and they also bought into the fear, Project Fear, with the Brexit argument, you know. Um, maybe they're more likely to be motivated by fear rather than um, Brexiteers who want to take the risk and yeah. live their life. Well, you know? just be individuals as well. Yeah, just be individuals, individual freedom. I think, you know, what was interesting about the Brexit campaign is that the corporates were the ones who wanted to remain, but the mm. entrepreneurs, those who took individual risk yeah. and also got the reward for taking those risks, wanted to leave. Mm. And so it's a totally different mentality of how you evaluate risk. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as Biden goes, um, do you think he lasts the term? I mean, it's almost unlikely now that he's going to get a second term, but do you think he will finish out the first one? I mean, yeah, I definitely there's not a second term. And I think even Democrats would tell you that from the beginning. But um, I think it's going to be one to watch. He seems to have some form of cognitive decline. Mm. I don't I'm not a doctor. I don't want to assess what that is. But uh, there's something not right there. And I, I know that they'll do their very best to keep him through the entire term, but he's going to oversee, I think, what will be a pretty devastating midterm election. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, and what about Donald Trump? I mean, he obviously wants to come back if he can. I presume he's still planning on that. Yeah, I mean, I think he likes to keep his name in the mixing bowl. I think he likes keeping, he wants to be in the press and the media and he wants to keep people guessing. I don't think we'll know until the very last minute with him, but my gut says that he does not enter the fray. OK, well, that's interesting, Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. Sarah Elliott, their spokesman, spokeswoman for Republicans Overseas UK and chair of the Hamilton Society as well. Joe Biden really is uh, going down the gurgler faster uh, than you can say Kamala Harris. And nobody hears from her at all. Nobody knows what she's up to. Nobody knows what she's plotting or planning even. But she could end up being the president before the end of Joe Biden's term, couldn't she? Watch this space. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.